but yeah, Friday, Friday night, we had said 7 o'clock, but I think we should bump that back to 6.30. Uh, so we'll start our progressive dinner at 6.30. Now all we need is four or five host families uh, to open up their homes to potentially, you know, 20 to 80 adults. So any takers on that, just let us know. We got one. There we go. Okay, there we go. We got one. So maybe by the end of the service, the Spirit will so move upon you to invite us in. Okay, great. We are a church that likes to try things, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. The genesis, though, behind GJAN, the glass jar activity night, was we were tired of trying to come up with events that would get you guys excited, so we put your ideas in the glass jar. So somebody here somewhere thinks a progressive dinner is a great idea, and I am very much on board with that. Every time uh, Kate and I are celebrating anything that is me-focused, like my birthday, or if I... It's basically just birthdays, but I will always want to do my own progressive dinner. We'll start at the Outback, and we'll get a Bloomin' Onion. From there, we will go to another restaurant, probably the Olive Garden, because right now they're offering an all-you-can-eat lasagna. I know that when you go to the Olive Garden, you're, you're sitting there eating your lasagna, and you're thinking, you know what I need? I need more lasagna for free to go with the copious amounts of breadsticks that I've had and the salad, which makes us all feel like we're really eating clean, though. You know, it's like, I've got my roughage for the day, and that's great. Okay, let's talk about the Bible now. Um, I think we should start with a word of prayer, <laughs> and then we'll jump uh, right on in. For the last couple weeks, we have been looking at the book of Exodus, and we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, on this fascinating and very timely book of the Bible. Uh, we will do a little bit of review for those of you that are new uh, to, to catch you up to speed. And then we'll talk about a story that for most of you, if you spend any amount of time within the church, it should be a familiar story to you. But I imagine that we'll shed some new light on it uh, this week. So get excited for that. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful that we can laugh and we can um, plan for ridiculous events together as a community, as a family, as your body. God, I ask that you would always go before us, whether we are doing a progressive dinner or whether we are serving uh, within our community or whether we are planning for the future of this church. May you lead the way and may we always follow in your path. God, through your Holy Spirit, may we be emboldened this evening to leave here changed and transformed, to uh, be able to sense your conviction where we need to be convicted, to turn from the ways that do not please you in our own lives, to address the relationships that are broken or fractured, to address the things in our life where we have built up walls between us and you. May this evening be a time when we are drawn closer to you. Even as we look at the Old Testament, may we see your son with clarity and with focus. And may we leave here with purpose and ambition, not just willing, but excited to share the good news of the life and the hope that is available only through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, be with us this evening. Keep us from error and help us to see things in a new and fresh and clear way as we are being conformed into the image of your son. And we pray these things all in his name. Amen. So tonight we will be continuing the narrative in Exodus. We're looking at Exodus chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first 10 verses there. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, 
and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The word of God for the people of God. So I'm sure that you all have people in your life that can tell a great story. There's people that you just want to be in a room with. They're charismatic and they just, uh, I don't know, they can sit down and talk about anything. And you just are hanging on their every word and you want to hear what it is they have to say. The little anecdotes that happened to them at work or the, just the way that they can put things into perspective. You have those people in your life where you are excited about interacting with them and hearing their stories. Now, on the flip side, you also no doubt have people in your life that are a little bit less narratively inclined shall we say, the people at the dinner table that are intending to tell you one story, but branch off over here and over there, and they're all over the place when they tell their story. My dad is smiling at me right now because he knows that he is this person in my life, at least one of them. Dad will want to tell a story about something that happened to him at work, but he has to give us the background. As he's going mid-story, he'll, he'll pause and take care of this little bit of background because we need to know about Jed and all of the things that, you know, makes Jed, Jed, or we need to hear about, you know, this aspect of his work or this aspect of his truck or this aspect whatever. And by the end of it, he reaches the crescendo and we're like, I have no idea what you're even talking about anymore. <laughs> it's not that he's a bad storyteller, but he's kind of a bad storyteller. Okay. Um, my friend Ryan was the same way where he would always say that he's going to tell a twilly story and he would just go on and on and on and on. And by the end of it, you had no idea what it was that he was talking about anymore. And you just kind of nod along and be like, oh, that's great, that's great. But you have people in your life that can tell a good story and you have people in your life that might not be able to be uh, as concise or clear in the way that they're articulating what has happened to them or what they think is so exciting in their life. Now, I say this because when we look at the Bible, I think it's important for us or advantageous for us to read the Bible as literature. And I don't mean any disrespect to the authority of the Bible or the inspiration of the Bible or the infallibility of the Bible or any of these words that we have commonly ascribed to the Word of God. However, it's interesting to me that when we look at the Bible, we read it very differently than we do a Jane Austen novel. We read it very differently than we do a work by Kurt Vonnegut 
We read it very differently than we do anything that's assigned to us in our intro level SU English course, where the goal is for you to rip the story apart and to see the characterization and to see the plot and to move towards the denouement of the story, to see all of the things being brought together if that's how the author is anticipating it. But when we read the Bible, we don't often do that because we want to respect the Bible. I think, though, that when we do that, sometimes we miss some of the ridiculous beauty within our own Bibles, especially within the Old Testament. These guys knew how to tell a story. They knew how to tell a good story without branching off and trying to cover all their bases. Sometimes they were just leaving us just enough detail to see what was going on and to, to advance the narrative. But oftentimes we misunderstand what's going on because we want to just get to the point. Or we just want to see what this means for me. And sometimes we miss the beauty in the Bible. Now, looking at the Bible as literature, are you guys ready to enter into the whimsical world of historical uh, critical biblical scholarship? Do you want to do that or do you want me to, to advance us beyond that? Anybody want us to do that? One person, I see that hand and here we go. Great, I want to he talk about the whimsical world of the history of critical biblical scholarship. Okay, here's the deal. Um, prior to like the late 70s, early 80s, what people did when they read the Old Testament is they wanted to go behind the story, which means that when they looked at a text, they would try to see its component parts and where those parts came from. There's one approach which is called source criticism, where they try to deconstruct the text to say, this author wrote this story and then this author wrote this story. Most famously, as we look at the Bible, as soon as we open it up, we have Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And people go on and they see that structure, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and they, they posit from that that there was one author who was penning a story very, very, very differently than the author of Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, God seems to be abstract. He's beyond the things and he's speaking things into existence. He's, he's looking at his creation as we'll see and he's seeing that it was good, but he's like a bit removed from the story. It's ordered, right? We have day one, day two, day three, and it's all this precise, structured retelling. In Genesis 2, though, God is very different. He's getting his hands dirty, right? It says when he creates man, he, he puts his hands into the dirt and molds man and breathes his own breath into mankind so that mankind would become a living being. We have two of these different pictures of God, and we have two texts that use different names for God. So some scholars go back and say, well, they must be written by two different people, and they want to take the Bible and deconstruct it into its component parts. There's other people that look at the text, and they do something called redaction criticism, where they know, and we've talked about this uh, for the last couple of weeks, we say that the Bible has these stories that may have been rooted with Moses, but then there's other hands that have been on these stories going down into the 6th century, some 700 years or so after Moses. There's different editors, if you will, that have put words in the text or pieced them together, and people want to take it apart and say, now this bit right here is original, and then this bit is an editor later saying something about the text. So we have people for the longest time have wanted to break the Bible apart, and it wasn't until the 80s when they said, this is like mind-blowing, hey, let's read the Bible as a story and see what it has to say as it sits in the text. And from this, people began to see all of the beautiful narrative artistry in the Bible. Are you with me so far? 
I know you're thinking about football, but bring it back for a second, okay? We're here, so let's make the most of it. So reading the Bible as good literature, in the text that we looked at last week, we see how the authors of Exodus brought this to bear. It says, then a new king, this king remains unnamed in the story. This king had been brought to prominence. He did not know Joseph. He did not know the sons of Israel. He did not know these people that had been in good relationship with the previous king. The people that had been favored and had received food and care, this new king did not have any sort of concern for these people, and he was scared that they were growing at too rapid of a pace. There was too many Israelites, if you will. And he thought to himself, well, I'm scared. I'm the new king in town, and if these people become so big, whenever war breaks out, they're going to partner with the people that are against us, and they're going to destroy us, and they're going to leave this place, so we need to do something about that. And his idea was threefold. First, he tried to have a handle on this population explosion by making the Israelites work harder. It says that he forced them to build store cities of Pithom and Ramses, these, these massive structures, supposedly, where these Israelites were working hard in the fields. But as I joked last week, they weren't working them hard enough because they kept having babies, people. His idea of what could stop this um, procreative activity was to make them work, but that did not work. So he moved to a bit uh, of a different take. Instead of just working these people hard, he was going to start killing the infant babies. Now, the first way that he wanted to do this was by uh, recruiting the Hebrew midwives, which again, this king is not named in the text, the unnamed Egyptian king was faced with two named Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And we have these two women who, in the face of extreme danger and in the, in the face of their own security, say to Pharaoh in no uncertain terms, we will not do what you're asking us to do. And they let the boys live. Now, at the end of this story, and we did not look at this last week, it ends with this climactic line, which kind of leaves us right on the cusp. It says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. He is superseding the Hebrew midwives that are in charge of delivering these babies of this people group that is marginalized and ostracized and now suppressed. He says, we will take care of this ourselves and every Hebrew boy that is born, you, Egyptian people, must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. That is going to be important. But he, he breaks this um, edict now beyond just the Hebrew midwives and he's asking his own people to take care of business. Dun, dun, dun. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know if this slide means anything to anybody but me or other people that were born in the 80s. By a show of hands, does anybody know what's going on with this slide? All my old people, thank you, and some youngins. Okay, now, when I was a kid, I loved Back to the Future. Okay? And I specifically uh, loved seeing what was going on and, and what was happening. There's a comedian that has a really funny bit on uh, just thinking about who would ever pitch this movie to any sort of movie producers because it's a ridiculous idea. It's a 17-year-old, lazy high school kid whose best friend is a nuclear physicist who is ostracized in the community and lives by himself. And they just hang out and make time machines. I mean, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous idea. Um, 
But at the end of Back to the Future 1, after Marty has gone back in time and almost fallen in love with his mother, again, sort of a strange <laughs> plot, you know? Um, when he comes back, Doc Brown is flying in the DeLorean, and as like a, I don't know, an eight to 10-year-old kid, the flying DeLorean was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And at the end, he said, we must go back, Marty, to the future. And it says, to be continued. And we're like, whoa, my goodness. I don't know if you have the same reaction now because you could just go to the next movie in your Netflix queue and watch what happens in, in part two. But as a, as a kid, it was like, I can't wait until this next movie comes out. What's going to happen? And something similar to that's happening in Exodus. <laughs> Except you don't have to wait at all. You just turn the page. But the end at Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, he says, to all of his people, when you see a Hebrew boy born, throw it in the Nile. And as the story turns, it says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Dun, dun, dun! Dun, 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 dun. You know what I mean? It's like, there's this big moment. And for a second there, it's like this to be continued. What's gonna happen? I don't know. And then it turns the page and now we have Hebrew people having a son and you know that this king wants them to die. But the author and the way that they're telling the story, it's absolutely brilliant. Note number one, just for fun, the dad that has nothing to do with this story. It just says, yeah, there was a man of the tribe of Levi. And then he's not mentioned ever again. Okay, this story is dominated by female characters. And all my ladies in the room said, whoop. <laughs> so, something, that all the ladies in the room made some sort of noise, I don't know. <laughs> but now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And for the people that are super churched, you know what's gonna happen. I mean, I just read the story to you, but imagine if you will this evening with me that you don't know the end of this story and you've just heard that the king of Egypt wants all these kids dead and now you meet this sweet little Levite couple and they introduce their new baby boy. What is going to happen? What are they going to do? They don't want to kill their kid. How is this going to play out? Now, before this gets better, it's going to get a bit nerdy, okay? So I want to I connect some dots for you because they're important as we think through this story. Okay, don't be intimidated. There it is, okay? It says, when she saw that he was a fine baby. <laughs> okay, the, the parlance of our time would mean, it means something a bit different, but that's a weird phrase, is it not? I don't know about you, Brandon, but when we like, brought our, our kids into the world, I didn't look back and say, no, that's a fine baby. <laughs> I mean, maybe we're going back to the 50s and I've got my cigar that's colored accordingly to it's a light blue cigar. That's a fine baby. Isn't it, Jim? Have a cigar. It just, it seems crazy to me, but underneath of this is, a, is a, a citation or an illusion that no one would have missed as an ancient reader. It says, um, now when she saw that he was a fine baby, when she saw ki tov, who? Ki tov. Say it with me, ki tov. That he was a good baby. The language takes us immediately back to Genesis. Whenever God in Genesis chapter 1 is creating, he steps back and, and says, it's good. Ki tov. 
This is not a normal phrase in the Hebrew text. So for her to look back and see her son and say, Ki tov, throw your flags all over the place, wave your hands all around, say, stop, stop, stop. We're missing something here if we do not see the connection that the author is making back to Genesis. Moses is Ki tov, just like the stuff that was created in Genesis 1 is Ki tov. Perhaps then Moses is a new creative act. And that's exactly what some Jewish scholars say. This parallel suggests that the birth of Moses is intended to be understood as the dawn of a new creative era. This is how they're telling stories. This is not me and dad at the dinner table all all over the place. This is like intentional, beautiful storytelling. And for an ancient reader, they would have heard this and said, something weird's happening with Moses. Why would his mom say ki tov? Because when God creates, he says ki tov. Is there some connection there? There's a new creation out of the watery chaos. Kate's looking at me like, you might have to explain this, buddy, because nobody, I don't think, knows what you're talking about. Beautiful, thank you, I would love to. In Genesis 1, it talks about when God is creating, it says God creates the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and void. It was tohu vabohu, right? It was formless and empty. And in days 1 through 3, God takes care of the formless, and he shapes stuff, and he moves stuff, and he puts stuff in its proper place. And then in days 4 through 6, he fills the earth. He takes care of the void problem. So God is shaping the earth, and he's filling the earth. And it says in Genesis 1, verse 2, now the earth, it was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The great mythical to home. This is the stuff that made ancient Hebrew people scared out of their minds because there was this chaos that could not be stopped and God is the one who's shaping the chaos into creation. And it says that the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Get an image of this because in Genesis 1, I think that we just kind of think that God is back here and he's making these edicts and he's snapping his fingers and things are popping up into existence. But in Genesis 1, it seems that God has like this snow globe of stuff and he's moving it and he's shaping it and he's putting it into its proper place. He's creating out of the watery chaos. This is uh, made even more clear when he says, I must create, I'm sorry guys, this is like, I love talking about this stuff. God says, I must create a rakia." A dome, an expanse. Why? To keep the waters up there separate from the waters down here. There is water everywhere. And God is shaping things into existence and making it habitable for people to exist in the poem of Genesis 1. God is creating out of the watery chaos. Now, what really seals the deal for this in Exodus chapter 2 And it says, she got a papyrus basket, a teva for him, and coated it with tar or bitumen. It actually says that she bitumened it with bitumen. Don't say that too fast or in the wrong connotations because it could be heard kind of risque. Uh, So she tarred it and, and pitched this thing. Where do you think the only other use of this little craft that is keeping one person on the waters, floating them to safety, where do you think the only other place that word is used in the Hebrew Bible? It is Genesis, the story of Noah. The ark that houses Noah and his family on the waters of chaos where God is having a new creative event here. Moses' mom is creating for him an ark. 
And she's doing the same thing that Noah did with the ark so that Moses would be okay. I'm freaking out up here, guys. Is that, is that good or is that not good? That's good. Because what's happening here is we have a parallel between Noah and Moses. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the biblical text, Noah is this character where God says he has created people and they keep doing wicked things over and over, so much so that God is grieved that he even made humankind in the first place, which wrap your head around that for a second. But he says, Noah, I want you and your family to get on board of a big old ark because I'm going to flood this place. All sorts of difficult theological issues happening here, but all you need to know is that God is recreating through Noah and his family, and now God is recreating through Moses. One scholar says both Noah and Moses are specifically selected to forego a tragic, watery fate. Both are placed on an ark, treated with bitumen, and are carried to safety through the very body of water that brings destruction to others. And both are vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his own purposes. God is having this new creative moment out of the watery chaos. And for an ancient reader, bells and whistles would have been sounding all over the place and they would have concluded, this Moses guy, something's up with him. Key tove. Okay, so we had this new creative activity out of watery chaos and Moses is going to be doing something. The mom, she places the child in the ark and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. It's interesting that the same word there for reeds is used uh, to describe the Red Sea. It's actually the Sea of Reeds. Um, Same term used there. So it's also not just looking back to Noah, but it's also a precursor for Israel marching themselves through the waters of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea to to go to safety. But she places him in this ark and his sister stands at a distance to see what would happen to him. Sister comes out of nowhere. We don't know that this is even part of the family until we see her here in the midst of it. But think like a mom for a second. There's this edict going out by the king of Egypt that says, you need to kill your kids. And the moms in the room say, no, I do not, sir. Watch your face. I'm going to make a little ark for my baby and float him down the river. It's interesting uh, because, you know, when, when Pharaoh finally says to all his people that the Nile was going to be this agent of destruction, she's technically following the law, right? She's following the edict. She's putting her kid in the Nile, but she's putting him in a little watercraft, Okay? And she's floating him down the river, and it's, it's introducing all sorts of questions that are going on here. Any mom in the room, I think, would want their child to be safe. There's some discussion among scholars uh, surrounding the idea of when she put him in the Nile, did she know that Pharaoh's daughter was going to show up? I'd like to answer on behalf of the moms in the room. Yeah, I think so. But still, she is putting her neck out there to save her kid because she doesn't know what the daughter of the king of Egypt is going to do in light of her dad's decree to kill all these kids. This is like a risky maneuver. And of course, little Miriam is wanting to follow Moses and see what is going to happen to him. And she becomes a bit more precocious as the story goes on. Uh, But one scholar says, abruptly, the daughter of Pharaoh, who is also unnamed, the only person in chapter two that's named is Moses. Okay, this is beautiful storytelling. She comes to the river to bathe and she finds the baby. Here are the questions. Was this discovery planned by the mother? 
Did Pharaoh's daughter bathe in that place regularly? Check this one out. Did she willfully bathe in the very river now burdened by her father with death? Dad says, hey, we're gonna drown all of the Hebrew babies in the Nile, and then she goes down to take a bath in the Nile. Is this like a, some sort of resistance movement here by her? Like, what's her, what's her MO with this? What will she do when she sees the baby? Will she replicate her raging father and kill the baby? This is good storytelling for people that do not know how it ends. And if you can take yourself back and read it along verse by verse, the suspense is building and you do not know what is going to happen. Moses' mom has floated her little son on this ark that she has created. And now Pharaoh's daughter sees him. It says she opened the ark. She sees it in the reeds. Uh, she goes to get one of her handmaidens to bring the ark to her. She opens it and she saw him. Interesting tidbit. This is the only text in the Hebrew Bible where a baby is crying. Every other text is adults crying. Okay? I didn't fact check that, uh, but one of my Jewish commentaries said that. So I'm going to roll with it for now. Okay, but feel free. Google is your friend. Um, he was crying, and it says that she felt sorry for him. This is a real weak word here. It's not just that she's like, oh, it's a sweet little baby. She wants to save this baby. But check out what she says next. This is one of the Hebrews. This is one of the kids that dad wants dead. But look how sweet he is. Look how cute he is, even when he's crying. And what's she going to do now? She understands what's going on. This is one of the babies that is supposed to be sentenced to death. Now think like an Egyptian princess here for a second. You're just minding your own business trying to take a bath and you see a baby in a basket. What do you do? Dad wants all these kids dead. Do you defy the empire who is now dad? Most teenage girls in the, in the room, I think, are like, yeah, of course, that's, that's, what, that's what we do collectively as a group. Um, but as an Egyptian princess, what are you going to do here in light of finding this baby that you know is one of those Hebrew babies? Then his sister just kind of peeks up from behind the reeds and says, hey, you want me to find a wet nurse for you? <laughs> Couldn't help but notice that you found a baby. Uh, do you want me to just go find somebody that can, can nurse him for you? I mean, Miriam, it's like, calm down. I think you've kind of played your hand a bit too soon here. Um, but she wants to figure out what's going on here because in this time, the only people that really did have wet nurses were royalty. So the question makes sense. No other Hebrew woman would have paid anyone to nurse their child, okay? Now think like a sister for a second. Would you be willing? I mean, she's, she's taking a leap of faith too because again, this is the family that wants all these people dead. And now she just kind of pops up from behind the reeds and says, hey, I'd like to help. All of the people in Moses's family, Sand's dad, are kind of going out on a limb for him here. It says, then the sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you one of the Hebrew women to nurse? Literally, this is to cause to suck. Okay, I've done this before, but I want to do it again just because I think it's hilarious. It's, there's only a few times in my life when I can use Hebrew jokes, but I know there's a couple of people in the room that will appreciate what's going on here. Now, the Hebrew verb here is yanak. Okay? Now understand that originally, you guys are like glazing over like, man, get to, get to a point. Originally, the Hebrew text was unpointed. There were no vowels. So 
we could see this verb here to suck as Y-N-Q or yod noon kof Now, if there are no vowels, we can almost import our own. <laughs> Yankee to suck. Thank you, okay? Seminary education pays off again, people. All right, so she says, yes, go. So the girl, Moses' sister, went and got the baby's mother. And this is what uh, Pharaoh's daughter says to the mom. Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Now, what she's basically doing is contracting to raise her own child for anywhere from two to four or so years until she can bring him back. And don't you know that mom is teaching her kids some things about what it means to be a Hebrew baby. Don't you know that? Abe, our oldest, is three. And there's all kinds of things that I'm trying to instill into Abe. How to be a decent human being, for one, but others, like just ridiculous things. Like we have try to have normal conversations with Abe. So if we wanted to know like the morphology behind Yanak, I would probably walk him through that just so that he could start piecing together Hebrew theology. You know, just because that's the weird stuff that we do. But here, don't you know that Moses' mom is teaching him all these things even though she's going to have to give him up? It says the princess knows exactly what she is doing. She recognizes that the baby is a Hebrew baby, a child from the slave community. Remember, the slave community that's on the outskirts and on the margins, the people group that is not to be brought in, that is to be held at bay almost, a child under the royal ban, a child under death sentence from her father, and she spares his life. Another scholar says the princess's calm compassion toward this child and her commitment to long-term non-compliance. She is bringing this child who is supposed to be dead into her own home under the roof of her dad that wants them all to die. This long-term non-compliance with her father's brutal decree constitutes a public demonstration of the bankruptcy of his policy. Hey, dad, what you want to do is not going to work. Look at what I got. He'd actually be like four or five, like, look at what I got. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One scholar says this, and I think it's beautiful, and it's at least worth pondering. The courage of women. And I want to play this up a bit because within most biblical texts, this is not the case. Women are sort of um, silenced, and women are, are pushed to the back burner, but in the first couple chapters of Exodus, the courage of women is the beginning of liberation. You're dang right. And to the ladies in the room, do not forget that. And to the men in the room, do not forget that because we at times have been part of the silencing crowd from an important voice within our own community. And at times, the things that these women are doing and putting, sticking their necks out for the sake of people is the beginning of liberation. Sometimes that works itself out in the way that people put their necks out for the sake of relationship to bring people to Christ. Do not silence that and do not dismiss that. The courage of women is the beginning of liberation in Exodus. And we also see hints of that, not even hints, just we see the reality of that in our own time as well. These women, and this is um, one of the last points I have here. These women have been designated as enemies by the royal decree of their powerful new king. The three women, however, refuse to live out their assigned hostility to one another. 
the Egyptian princess refuses to live out the hostility toward the Hebrew baby and also to the Hebrew mom and the Hebrew sister. She refuses that role that society has put on her. The Hebrew mom refuses the hostility that society has put on her towards Pharaoh's daughter. In fact, she puts her baby in an ark and says, you're my last hope. Do what is right. And she trusts her. We have these women who are not living out the assigned hostility to one another. In fact, they become unwitting allies, each playing an unexpected role in the life of a baby. They are unwitting allies. Focus for two seconds. Who are you called to be an unwitting ally with this evening? The people groups that the church or that society has said they are not part of us, who are we entrusted to be an ally with for the sake of the life of fill in the blank? Who are we supposed to be an ally with for the sake of the gospel or the growth of the kingdom? Who are we supposed to be allies with that society says you can't be allies with them? They're not on your team. Democrat, Republican, We're trying not to get political in here, but our society is saying the line is drawn and you cannot be with those people. And as the pastor of a church that is incredibly diverse, politically, theologically, ideologically, I say, forget that mess. Because we serve King Jesus who says, I have broken down every wall that divides us. And when we live like that, we don't just become unwitting allies, we become allies for the sake of the gospel. That's what it is that we need to do, and that's what it means for us to be in relationship with one another. That's what it means when we leave our seats and we walk down this red carpet to receive the body and the blood. That's what it means that we are united, we are family, and you cannot stop us. And I do not care how you pull the lever in the voting booth, and I do not care about the things that you have in your mind that separate you from one another, because the thing that brings us together is our love and our commitment to a risen Savior. Let's move beyond unwitting allies and move towards becoming known allies where we say, I know you and I love you. I know what you think about this, but I love you in spite of it. I know what you think about this and I'd like to sit down and have a meal and hear more about that so that I can learn and grow and perhaps you can understand me a bit better so that we can serve Christ together better. And we see in this story, we have these unwitting allies from Pharaoh's daughter to his Hebrew mom to his Hebrew sister, and they're in partnership together. So reading the Bible as good literature is demanding that we see some of these things, and I've got Alanis Moore set here in the corner, because isn't it ironic, don't you think, (laughs) that throughout this text we have these ironies that show us what these authors are doing. The Nile is meant to be destructive, but it is the means by which Moses is saved. Pharaoh says, we kill all the kids in the Nile, and mom says, no we don't, we're putting them in an ark. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? The daughters are allowed to live. He says, let all the daughters live, but they are the ones who thwart Pharaoh's plans. You can't keep a good woman down, because she's got stuff to do. And in this text, she is saving people's lives. Moses' mom saves him by following Pharaoh's orders, putting him in the Nile just in a way that wasn't necessarily expected. Pharaoh's daughter undermines his policies. It's ironic that his own daughter says, Dad, I I love you, bud. That's nuts. Look how cute this baby is. You know? 
A Hebrew girl gives Egyptian royalty advice and she follows it. That mess doesn't happen. Moses' mom gets paid to be a mom of her own child. That's beautiful. Moses is educated to lead Israel in Pharaoh's own house. Isn't it ironic? I don't know if it's like rain on a wedding day, but it is pretty stinking cool that Moses is educated within Pharaoh's home to lead Israel. Moses' Egyptian name, which is given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, it means much more than she realized. This is a common name within uh, the Egyptian world at the time. For a Hebrew reader, what they would have heard is he's drawn out. She wasn't doing that. That's just how it worked. It has this double entendre where we see Moses is actually being the one who is drawn out. And above all, God, throughout this story, he's notably absent, but he's also moving in unobtrusive, unlikely, and vulnerable ways throughout, namely in the divine irony that God is using the weak to shame the strong. Hebrew mom, Hebrew sister, in the face of the empire, God says, I want you to do work, which brings me to this question. How will he or how is he using you? We have these grand ideas of what it looks like, and sometimes we sit there and we say, well, I can't, I can't do that. That's their job, or I... No way would my words mean anything. Who am I? But what we see in this story is a challenge that God is able to use the most unlikely of people in the grandest of ways to potentially save lives, either in real life or spiritually where you could be the person that is able to speak life to a roommate, to a coworker, to a family member that no one else can reach. I don't want you to hear that in a way that's guilt-induced. You're like, oh my goodness, without me, then nothing's gonna work. I don't want you to hear that, but what I do want you to hear is the challenge that God wants desperately to use you. And it's time that we stop diminishing who we are or who we could be and begin to see how God is using people all throughout his word and then living in light of that together. I am hopeful that once we can squash the stuff that keeps us separated, when we can come together as a family under the unity of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, that this community is uniquely poised to do work in this community, this ragtag group of people where you might be sitting there thinking, who am I? To the creator of the universe, he says, you are mine and I want to use you. Be open to that this evening.